0: Sit down. <coughs> 25 minutes. Uh, by this time of the year, with the, the nights drawing in, the temperatures dropping, and the leaves on the trees turning, I begin to look rather wistfully back to the summer. Do you do the same? As something of a sun lover, I do miss the glorious summer sunshine of holidays on the beach. I was just remembering it with a friend uh, just before this, this service. Well, look, if you're like me in that respect, then we've got a treat for you over the next seven weeks. Uh, The next seven Sunday evenings. It's something of an exclusive that we have here at Christ Church Forwards. You won't find it in the Thompson Winter Sun brochure. Uh, We're going to spend seven weeks in ancient Israel. You see, as we open our Bibles to Malachi these next weeks, we'll be travelling back in time 400 years, uh, sorry, to 400 years BC, 2,400 years. A quick glance through the brochure, through the pages of Malachi if you're not with me, um, tell us the sort of sites that are in store. We'll make several trips to the magnificent temple where we'll meet the priests and for those who can stomach it, we'll take a close look as they perform animal sacrifices. Later on, we'll stop at the vineyards of Jerusalem, but I need to tell you there won't be any wine tasting on this trip as it's been a bad year for the crops. Still, any disappointment that you feel about that will, I'm sure, be overcome as we experience some amazing technology on this trip. Uh, Not unlike stepping into a simulator, it's called the eschatological prophetic word. It will thrust us forward in time, giving us a glimpse into the final days of this earth. Having said all that, the main attraction over the next seven weeks are the ruins. Now look, if history and architecture is not your thing and the thought of walking around old buildings leaves you cold, fear not because the ruins of this trip are not old buildings. No, the surprise and indeed the great horror, the horror is that the ruins in Malachi are the people of God themselves. Ancient Israel, 400 years BC and God's people are a mess. They're in tatters and that is actually why we're going there. Because although it will be uncomfortable at times, as we look at them, we will see what we ourselves are like. Which brings us to consider the temperature. If you're feeling a bit miserable about the weather, Sunday evenings will rectify that. You see, as we look through the book of Malachi, we will feel the heat. At times, it may even be a bit too hot to handle. See, in chapter 1, we'll see people who have all the external marks of religion, but with no respect for God. Look at chapter 1, verse 6. God says, A son honours his father and a servant his master. If I'm a father, where is the honour due to me? If I'm a master, where is the respect due to me? This section that we'll look at next week speaks of people simply going through the religious motions. It's uncomfortably contemporary. There's plenty of dead, dry religion, not only in Malachi's day, but in the churches in the 21st century Britain. Someone once described the Church of England to me like this, the wheel is still going round, but the hamster's already dead. Now look, this expose of dead religion in Israel will be a great thermometer for us. It will help us to take our own spiritual temperature. Next week, as we look at the sacrifices that were going on in ancient Israel, and as we do, it won't be a sight for uh, the squeamish, uh, not because the sacrifices themselves will make us queasy, but because we'll begin to see that many of us who call ourselves committed Christians fall woefully short of the mark when it comes to wholeheartedly giving ourselves to the living God in chapter 2 we'll meet the leaders the shocking thing is the only leading they're doing is leading people astray because they no longer teach the scriptures have a look at chapter 2 verse 8 you have turned from the way and by your teaching have caused many to stumble you have violated the covenant you've turned from the way how contemporary that is just a few weeks ago, I met with a clergyman in this diocese who told me that he didn't expect people to marry before living together. Providing they were in a committed relationship, it didn't matter to him what their sexual orientation was. Leaders in the church in this land have turned from the truth, and so they cause people to stumble. In a few weeks' time in Malachi, we'll see that just as the leaders have departed from God's word, so the people have reflected that disobedience in their own lives and not least of all in their relationships. So at the end of chapter 2 and verse 14, we'll see that their marriages are breaking up all over the place. Well, it's not just broken up marriages. You'll see in chapter 2 verse 14, they've given up on the wives of their youth. Ah, the wife they used to love. Now a, a prettier model comes along and they just toss her aside. Sounds very contemporary, doesn't it? Very 21st century, even in the church. I've been desperately saddened in the last year as the marriages of two friends of mine have ended. Both couples were committed Christians. As we move among the ruins of chapters 3 and 4, we'll see very clearly the ruinous state of God's people. We'll hear them saying outrageous things against God himself. In chapter 2, verse 17, they say, God is pleased with evil people. In chapter 3, verse 14, they say, there's no point serving God. And this week, in our first trip to ancient Israel of Malachi's day, we see the depth of the cracks in these ruins. Here are God's people questioning God's love for them. Look at God's statement. The first of God's statements in these seven statements that we'll see over the next weeks. We're on now, if you're following the handout, the statement God's statement, Malachi chapter 1, verse 1, an oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi, I have loved you, says the Lord. See, astonishingly, despite all Israel's disobedience, the Lord still begins his word to his people by declaring his love for them. I have loved you, says the Lord. God loves his people and as we read through this passage we'll see the extent of that love. I have loved you in the past, I love you now, I will love you in the future. I've loved you. It is a remarkable word from God. Uh, Christian, just because you know God loves you, please don't lose sight of how amazing this is. I think we'll only see how amazing this is when we get to the end of the seven weeks, when we've seen how bad God's people are. God goes on loving you and me even though we don't deserve it. Even though we've taken his love for granted, even when we spurn his love, his love is amazing. And we'll get a sense of just how amazing these words are as we walk through this book and not least of all as we look next week, don't miss next week, at the second section of chapter 1. Yeah, we'll see all the way through these weeks how disobedient God's people are, how we grieve our God by the way we live. And that's why these opening words are so stunning. I've loved you, says the Lord. Can I plead with you to log these words in your mind now? Don't lose sight of them when God says hard things to us through this book. And we can expect hard things to be said. Do you see verse 1, how it begins? An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. These are not Malachi's words, these are the words of the Lord. And the word oracle there in verse 1 essentially means burden or weight. The, words, the Lord's word is always serious and weighty. He doesn't waste his word. What he says matters And so as we read Malachi, God will say serious and weighty things to us. But as he does remember his first word through Malachi, chapter 1, verse 2, I have loved you. It's a wonderful declaration. But even as he says those words, the Israelites reply, demonstrate the ruinous state God's people are in. See how they question God's love, the question that they bring? Look at verse 2 again. I've loved you, says the Lord, but you ask... How have you loved us? Please, can you feel how hurtful that comment is? Any parent, and God describes himself as, a, as their father in chapter 1, verse 6, any parent knows how hurtful, how painful it is when their children question their love for them. This is like the cutting remark of the rebellious teenager as his, as his father rebukes him and he, he sort of turns back with a, you don't love me, how have you ever loved me? Every parent in this room will know how much that hurts. When your children are oblivious of your love, how much you've done for them, the sacrifices you've made for them, the time you've given them, not that you keep a record of it, you you do it because you love them and you're pleased to do it for them and you do it all again for them but when you've loved them so much and so often and they question your love, it hurts. Be sure it is no less painful for God our loving Heavenly Father His love for us is immense I try to begin every day by by saying my prayers I don't always but that's my intention and most days I do begin the day by saying my prayers and I usually begin my prayers with a time of, of praise and thanksgiving and you know I am never short of things to praise God for for my family for my friends, for, for clothes to wear. You may not be very impressed with them, but I'm thankful for them. Uh, for food to eat, for a home to live in, for health, mental and physical. Yes, I do have good mental health, despite what some people say. For my job, for money. To, I've got money in my pocket all the time. I'm not hard up for anything. I, I have so much to thank God for. And then, of course, supremely for Jesus, for salvation, for Jesus' death on the cross. That gives me forgiveness from the past and a future hope that makes sense of life. For the gift of the Holy Spirit to enable me to to become more holy, I trust, to, to help me through life. For the church family who are so encouraging to me. For being part of God's rescue mission for the world. He's on a mission and I can join Him on that mission. I've never ceased to have things to praise Him for. He has given me so much supremely I know God's love through the atoning death of Christ on the cross. Romans chapter 5 verse 8, God has demonstrated his love for us in this, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How can we doubt God's love when he's demonstrated it to us so clearly, so publicly, so sacrificially? See, we have the cross. God says at the cross, I've loved you. Like the people of Malachi's day, we ask how? How can we ask that question? We have the cross, but even the people of Malachi's day could look back to the Exodus and more recently in their history to the exile. They should never have doubted God's love. Now let me tell you about the exile. You see, as we open the book of Malachi, we arrive in ancient Israel about 70 years or so after God's people have returned from exile. The temple and the walls of Jerusalem have been rebuilt. They had been flattened. They've been rebuilt under the leadership of great men like uh, those of you who are Bible readers will know some of these men, men like Nehemiah, Ezra, Haggai, Zechariah, Zerubbabel. Do you know some of those names? There's been a great restoration in Israel. They are no longer far from home in a foreign land. The last years have seen a remarkable turnaround in Israel's fortunes. And yet, and yet, it has to be said that Israel is a pale reflection of her former glory. Long before the exile, in their return from exile, God's people had expected a glorious renewal of their national life. Now, the glory days under King David, way back, they they thought those days would return, that they would once again become an all-conquering superpower, They'd hoped for the kingdom to be restored, indeed for the Messiah to come and to be reigning. But their expectations were far from reality. In reality, they they still weren't completely free, possibly still under Persian rule. In chapter 1, verse 8, there is talk of them being under the authority of the governor. So get this for a moment, there they were back in Palestine but the promised land was not a land flowing with milk and honey. Indeed, when we look at chapter 3 verse 11 in a few weeks' time we'll see that pests had devoured their crops. They were back in the land but it, it wasn't as it had been. It wasn't as they thought it should be. Maybe that's why they were doubting God's love. And the same could be true for us if we expect that becoming a Christian will solve all our problems. When problems come, we start to doubt God's love, if that's what we're expecting. God doesn't promise an easy life this side of eternity. But when that's your expectation, and that is what some Christians expect, a trouble-free life of ease, when that's your expectation, you may well begin to doubt God's love when things are tough. Sometimes I blame the preachers. You know, the preachers that say, come to Jesus and everything will be well. It's not true, is it? So you put those sort of expectations in people's minds and no wonder they doubt God's love when times are hard. You see, like the people of God in Malachi's day, we have come out of exile. As we return in repentance and faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, we're no longer exiled from God. We know the joy of relationship restored with God, but the, the full experience of a restored relationship with God is still to come. I haven't got it yet. We've got some of it, but not yet. I will only fully know the full joy of salvation when I'm with him in eternity. And until then, life will always have its disappointments, but if I have not faced up to that, when the disappointments come... I will question God's love. I read over the sum of this book a uh, broken down house. I found it very very helpful. And uh, let me quote from you at uh, the beginning of chapter 2. Is there anything that's disappointing you right now? Is there a relationship or situation that is leaving you hurt and confused? Are there personal problems that you simply have not been able to solve? Do you ever feel alienated? alone or misunderstood have you had to deal with mistreatment or injustice lately have you been hurt angry fearful or discouraged is there any place in your life where you feel like giving up or giving in does your life ever seem much more complicated than it should be does it seem like you're always having to deal with obstacles of one kind or another do you wish you didn't have so many problems on your plate Does it bug you that even the easy things in life don't turn out to be nearly as easy as you thought they would be? Are there problems in your past that still haunt you? Do you regularly face difficulties you've sought to solve but which still lie open and festering? Have you ever envied someone else's life? Have you ever wished you could start over in some area of life but you know you can't? Have you ever felt too weak and too unqualified to deal with what is confronting your life? Does your life seem to move too fast for you ever to really be able to catch up? Has there ever been a day in your life that was fundamentally problem-free? And then he says this. I think many of us live in a permanent state of what he calls location amnesia. He explains that. We've forgotten where we live. We lose sight of the fact that this is a broken-down world where nothing works quite right and it sets you up for all kinds of trouble. Isn't that real? Isn't that your life? Certainly mine. We live in a broken world. Yes, we have been restored in our relationship with God gloriously through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we're still in a broken world. And so there'll always be disappointments until we are finally with him. And until we grasp that, we will, we will always be tempted to doubt whether God loves us if we're expecting this life to be perfect. The ancient Israel of Malachi's they hadn't grasped that and so they doubted God's love for them. Even as God assured them of his love, they turned round and said, How? How have you loved us? In verse 2. While well, God made a statement. They asked a question and the answer to their question comes in verses 2 to 5. Now, in verses 2 to 5, these verses, in these verses God tells his people that he has loved them in the past and that he'll love them in the future and that's how they know that he loves them in the present. If you're still following on the handout then uh, I have loved you in the past says God in verses 2 and 3. Look at verse 2. I've loved you says the Lord but uh, you ask how have you loved us? And this is how he answers. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? The Lord says yet I've loved Jacob but Esau I've hated and I've turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. You might be reading that saying what's all that about? Let me say this. Here we see that God chooses a people to be his own. If you read the theological textbooks, it doesn't matter whether you do or not, but sometime you might, and so this word might be useful for you, the theological term is election. My guess is that the way the Lord replies to their question may surprise many Christians, maybe even most Christians. I have chosen you. That's how you know I love you. See, before I began my prep this week, if you'd have asked me, how has the Lord loved us? This certainly would not have been my first reply. Indeed, I'm thinking that I would have listed a whole number of things about God's love before I came up with election, if I'd even come up with it at all. Well, look, here in this passage, God cites his election. He's choosing his people as a mark of his love. Now, I know it's a very emotive subject, this, so before we look at the detail of this, these verses, let me say this. Until we have understood God's election as a demonstration of God's love, until we've seen election as a reason to praise God, then we haven't really understood election properly. Now, in these verses, God tells us how much he loves his people and election is always presented in the Bible that way. Look, uh, keep, keep this handout in Malachi chapter 1. and. And just flip forward with me, if you will, to Ephesians. The book of Ephesians, page 1173. It was the second of the two readings that we had read for us by Rob earlier. Page 1173, Ephesians chapter 1. I want you to see as we look at Ephesians 1 that the election, God choosing his people, is a reason for praising God. And then we'll go back to Malachi and see the same. Just look how Paul begins this letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. See, praise God It's how he ends as well, this section, at the end of verse 14. To the praise of his glory. It's all about praising God, this section. Why should I praise God? Verse 4. For he chose us in Christ before the creation of the world. Verse 5, in love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 11, in him we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Do you see the point? Election, being chosen by God is a reason for praise in the Bible. Now with that in mind, come back with me to Malachi uh, chapter 1, page 960 again. And the same thing is going on here. I've loved you, says the Lord. How have you loved us, say his disobedient people. I'll show you how I've loved you. The Lord says, verse 2, Was not Esau Jacob's brother? And the answer, of course, is yes, he was. In fact, Esau and Jacob were twins, in case you've forgotten. Esau was the eldest of the two brothers, and every Israelite listening to this would have known that because the people of Israel were descended from Jacob. They knew their family tree. They knew about Esau and Jacob, and they were descended from Jacob. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yes, he was. He was Jacob's elder brother. Verse 2. Yet I've loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. See the point? God said His love on Jacob, their forefather, in the family tree. He said His love on the younger brother. Esau, the elder brother, was entitled to the birthright, so to God's blessing. Yet God chose Jacob. Why? Why did God choose Jacob and not Esau? Well, it wasn't because Jacob deserved it. He was a real scoundrel. Read, the, read Genesis and you'll find that out. It wasn't because Jacob had any rights. If anyone had any rights, it was Esau. He was the firstborn. And it wasn't because Jacob had earned God's favour because he was chosen in the womb. Before he'd done anything, he'd been born. And that's the whole point. God's choice of Jacob was apart from any merit in Jacob. That's the gospel. We don't earn our salvation. It is given to us freely. That's how the gospel works. That is actually why election, God's choosing, is so important in understanding the gospel. It's what makes election a mark of God's love. Christian, why did God choose you? Not because you deserved it. You're a scoundrel, just like Jacob. Not because you earned it. You haven't done anything to earn it he chose you in Christ before the creation of the world that was before he'd done anything he didn't choose you because you had any rights to be chosen by God you and I don't have any rights at all God chose you because he chose you or as Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 7 and 8 puts it God loves you because he loves you what kind of answer is that? why do you love me God? I love you because I love you And actually, what kind of answer is that? That is the best kind of answer because that shows the purity of his love. And that love gives us great assurance and security. You see, when someone loves you for something special in you, what happens if that something special in you disappears? Think of the couple that have just fallen madly in love. It's not hard to imagine their gushing words to each other. It goes something like this, doesn't it? I love you, darling, I love you too. I love you because of your cute smile, your sense of humour, your gorgeous body. Am I allowed to say that from the pulpit? Anyway. Me... It all sounds so good, doesn't it? Imagine somebody saying that to you. It sounds great. But nobody's, nobody's ever said that to me, by the way. You know, <laughs> gorgeous body. Anyway. But it sounds so good. But, but listen, the next time somebody says that to you, here's how you respond. I love you because of your cute smile, your sense of humour, your gorgeous body. Here's how to respond. Oh, Yeah. So what happens when I'm not smiling and I don't make you laugh and I put on a huge amount of weight? Will you still love me then? Do you see the point? As soon as as love is conditional upon something, there's a measure of insecurity. What happens when I'm not so cute? Total security when someone says, I love you because I love you. I love you because I love you is the most wonderful love because it's totally dependable. That's God's love. It is unconditional love. And it is seen supremely in election. He chose us in Christ before the creation of the world, before we were even created, long before we'd earned his love. He chose Jacob in the womb before he had any chance to earn God's love. That's a pure love, a love that is not conditional on your performance or my performance. And we see how it has to be that way when we look at Esau, the the other brother, the elder brother. Verse 2, God says, Esau, I have hated. Now my guess is that as you read that, your response is, that's not fair. Let me caution you. Before you say that, let me warn you against appealing to justice, to fairness. For the moment we do, we are on a very sticky wicket You see, Esau was a man who showed his contempt for God. As the firstborn, Esau had the birthright, the right to God's blessing. But do you remember? Do you remember the story, Genesis chapter 5? He sold his birthright for a plate of stew. He came in one day famished and really, really wanting to eat anything that he could get his hands on. And his brother said, I've got some stew here. I'll give you this stew for the birthright. Yeah, I'll have that, he says. That's a good swap. Shows you how much Esau wanted God. He tossed God aside for a plate of meat. And Esau represents all mankind. We all exchange God for other things. We all exchange God for things that are worthless. We toss God aside for money and wealth and exotic holidays and success and recognition in our career, for a bigger house, for another woman, for marriage or, well, for any number of things. Esau didn't deserve God's love. He spurned God's love. He showed very clearly that he didn't want God Esau didn't deserve God's love. Jacob didn't deserve God's love. So don't appeal to justice. Don't say it's not fair. If you want fair, God chooses no one. That would be fair for everyone to be lost. Now in election we don't see fair, we see grace. God's grace means he chooses some and doesn't leave us all heading for a lost eternity God's grace means that we're not all left without him and without hope in the world the fact that you're a Christian today is a mark of God's grace in the past in choosing you in election and you should praise God for it the Lord says I've loved you they replied how have you loved us he says I've loved you in the past and then he says I'll love you in the future i love you in the future, in in final salvation. Look at verse 4. Edom may say, though we've been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says, they may build, but I will demolish. They'll be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. As we look at Jacob and Esau and their descendants, we can trace the path of what happens when God loves us and equally we can trace what happens when I am not loved by God and we see where it leads in the future. Now look what the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, were saying in verse 4. The Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. You see, like the Israelites, the Edomites had had their land decimated, crushed by the world superpowers of the day. Their land was, as it says in verse 3, a wasteland. But they had plans. They had plans to rebuild their lands. And as the years passed by and the Israelites watched the Edomites, there might have been times when they seemed to be achieving their desire to rebuild their land. At times they might well have seemed to be on the road to prosperity. That's how it is sometimes when we look at unbelievers, isn't it? At times we may look at people who, like the Edomites, have no interest in God and they seem to be doing very nicely, thank you very much. They're building something for themselves. A palatial home, a great career, a happy family, a big pension package. They They work towards a great future. They may even boast of being set up for life. And when you look at them, you might think they are. And if we happen to be struggling when we see people like that, we can seriously doubt God's love. Psalm 73 deals with this. Uh, The wicked prosper. People get away with murder. How is it that these people who take no interest in God seem to be doing so well and it's not going so well for me? When that happens, the Lord says, Look to the future, not not the short-term future that the unbeliever has. Look to the final day. Look to your final salvation when God will wrap up the world as we know it. Then all plans to build something for ourselves will come to nothing. See, verse 4, Eden may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says, they may build, but I will demolish. They'll be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. They may build, but I will demolish. There will come a time when unbelievers will be called, verse 4, wicked, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. Christian, there will come a day when you are with the Lord in eternity in the glorious promised land of the new heavens and the new earth and then you will see more than ever how much the Lord loves you. Because then you will see the permanence of judgment. Verse 5, you will see it with your own eyes. God is God of all. And when you see everyone who is not a Christian, always and forever under the wrath of the Lord, then you will know that God loves you. You will see how he has set his love upon you and saved you for eternity. And there won't be any doubt in your minds at all that God loves you. You'll see that he loves you even though you don't deserve his love because you will be no different from the unbelievers who are under his judgment. You will see that he loves you even though you failed him and ignored him and even at times dishonoured him. He loves you and he saved you. And so, Christian, when you're tempted to doubt God's love for you, when you measure God's love based on the moment, on on the way I feel at the moment, on your circumstances at the moment, know this, God loves you. He has loved you in the past, in election. He chose you to be his. And he will love you in the future, in salvation, on that final day, compared to the fate of unbelievers, you will see how much he loves you. And so you can be sure that he loves you now. Whatever it looks like. And whatever you feel like. Let's pray together.